It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Two former Goldman Sachs bankers and a fugitive Malaysian financier have been charged over the alleged plunder of billions of dollars from Malaysia's state development fund. Roger Ung, the only person in all of Goldman Sachs to stand trial in the U.S. over the scheme to loot billions from the Malaysian 1MDB fund, was convicted on all counts, conspiring to launder money and to violate anti-bribery laws. The alleged mastermind of the scheme, Jolo, is still a fugitive, and Ung's former boss, former Goldman banker Tim Leisner, made a deal and became the state's star witness. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Patricia Hurtado, who covered the trial. Pat, let's start almost at the beginning. Tell us how Ung came to be in the United States to face trial. He had been charged by Malaysia, and then in November 2018, the U.S. government files an indictment against Roger Ung and Joe Lowe. And based on that U.S. document, he gets picked up and held in custody in a Malaysian prison under very harsh circumstances. So his American defense lawyer, Mark Agnifilo, who defended him at the trial, convinced him to waive extradition and come to the U.S. and face the charges first. So Malaysia brokered an agreement with the U.S. government to let him go to trial first in the U.S., and then he'll have to go back now to Malaysia. But he was really being held in a Malaysian prison under what I understand were pretty horrific circumstances. This case featured startling confessions from Tim Leisner. Pat, it seemed like Ong was at the bottom of the ladder, so to speak. So if you think about it, the mastermind of this scheme is Joe Lowe, the Malaysian financier who came up with this idea, according to Tim Leisner. Tim Leisner is Roger Ong's boss at Goldman Sachs. And Roger was allegedly the relationship banker that knew Joe Lowe and introduced him to Tim Leisner. Tim Leisner described a host of crimes that he said he engaged in with Joe Lowe. And what the government did in this case was they had Tim Leisner plead guilty and cooperate down, if you will. So you're having like the equivalent of a mob boss cooperating down and testifying against an underling who may be less culpable. 
But because this is conspiracy, if one person takes an act in furtherance of the conspiracy, even if they're an underling, they can be held responsible for the more prolific crimes of their co-conspirators, either the boss or a Joe Lowe type. And Leisner made some startling confessions in his 10 days on the witness stand. So we had Kim Leisner admitting that he committed a lot of crimes, but he put Roger in with him in this scheme. And that was the story the jury heard, but they also heard, you know, admitting that he was twice married to two different women at the same time, that he had fabricated certain claims, that he had stolen money even from Joe Lowe. He admitted that he was holding on to $80 million of a $145 million euro transaction that Lowe sent him to, quote unquote, hold for him, and that he promised that he would pay it back, but he just hadn't had a chance to. The defense was arguing that Leisner had also stolen at least $1.5 million from Roger and that he was implicating Roger Ung in these crimes to basically not have to pay him back. Does this verdict mean the jury believed Leisner? Well, the government's argument was it doesn't matter if you believe him or not because you look at the evidence. And the government did have a very crucial piece of evidence. They traced the transaction, the money going out from Goldman Sachs, and it went into a fund that was supposedly to bankroll or fund the trio of bond transactions. And billions of dollars went into the account, but it was siphoned off through, if you will, it was like an offshore copycat bank account that Joe Lowe set up with his cronies. And hundreds of millions of dollars, literally the next day after a transaction, were getting siphoned off and diverted to other offshore companies and entities that Joe Lowe controlled. So all this money gets siphoned off immediately, and the FBI traced it back, and they showed jurors eventually downstream Roger's wife got the money in an account, which she said she created for her elderly mother. And I guess it's telling that the jury requested her testimony almost as soon as they began their deliberations? Yes, and the government really went after her, that her credibility, you know, she had this story that she had done a business transaction with Tim Weisner's former wife, Judy Chan Weisner, whose family is wealthy in China and has one of China's largest vineyards. So a very successful businesswoman, and their claim was the money had come from the two wives and the business transaction. She didn't have any evidence to support that, and the jury wanted to see her testimony direct and cross and what she said about it. Now, she did not have any supporting documents, and her story was that she had made this gratuitous investment early on in China with a friend of her family's, and then that the man was dying and told her that he, she would have to get it out of out of mainland China. And because she's not a Chinese resident, she was Malaysian Chinese, it had to be somehow handled so that she asked Judy Chan Leisner to take the money for her and invest it with her family, and that she had done very, very well. It was really telling in a way, because you could see that the government had traced all the money to these bank accounts related to Roger Long's wife. And because she testified, they were able to show documents and statements she made to bank employees stating, dear Mr. and Mrs. Ong, here's your mail or here's your transaction. So the government argued, here's evidence that it was really not an account belonging to Roger's mother-in-law, but really belonging to Roger Ong and his wife. 
What surprised me is that his lawyer, Mark Agnifilo, had expected an acquittal on all counts and was surprised by the verdict. I don't know the thinking of it. I guess that they were basically banking on the idea that the jury was going to scrutinize everything that Weisner said through the lens of, hey, you better question it because he's not really reliable. And in fact, the jury, the day before they reached a verdict, they asked for a copy of this document that Tim Leisner said had had been drawn up. His testimony was that Joe Lowe, in a secret meeting he had in London in early 2012, as the start of this 1MDB fraud was beginning, that he sat everybody down in his London house and he sketched out for Roger Ong and Tim Weisner and some other people that were employees of 1MDB how this fraud was going to go down and he, who was going to get the bribe. And it was a chart with names on it. And he said Abu Dhabi was on one side and Malaysia was on the other. And it would be the names of people, including the prime minister of Malaysia and his wife, and that he promised the two Goldman bankers that they'd be taken care of. Those are the words. And the jury wanted to see this chart. And Agnifilo had said, there's no chart. It doesn't exist. And asked Tim Leisner about it. And he said, well, yeah, there was a chart. Well, where is the chart? And he said, isn't it true that you didn't mention this chart for almost three years of cooperating when you were talking to the FBI? You never mentioned it. And then all of a sudden, you announced it almost three years later. Well, the jury asked to see the chart. And then there was a discussion in the courtroom. Well, what do you tell the jury? And the, the government said, well, there is a chart. And the defense said, well, there isn't a chart that describes this because this has only been testified to, but there is no actual chart in evidence. And the government said, well, yes, there is a chart because it was testified to on direct and cross. And the defense said, but there isn't a chart that is in evidence, is there? And finally, the judge brokered a deal and she decided that she was going to tell the jury there is no such chart describing what you want. It led me to think, wow, maybe this jury is going to go back and say, wait a minute, Tim Leisner testified about something that's not in evidence. Therefore, maybe you were misled by him or something, and maybe we'll go back and look some more. Maybe they did that, but they seemed to be satisfied, and they still you know, came back with a guilty count on everything. The defense is already planning an appeal. What issues are they looking at? There was a count that the jury found Roger unguilty of, and it basically circumventing internal controls and accounting practices of Goldman Sachs in conspiracy to violate the U.S. anti-bribery laws. This is the first time that count has gone to a jury. And Mark Agnifilo, who defended him, argued that the count should be dismissed and that there was no accounting controls. His view was that would go more to embezzlement of money from Goldman Sachs. And no money was embezzled from Goldman Sachs. If any money was embezzled, it was stolen after it left Goldman and it went to 1MDB. So that's an arcane argument. He also has appeals issues anyway, because there was the belated handing over of thousands of documents. They found discovery and they handed it over like literally I think a day and a half after opening arguments, as well as there was a disclosure of 15,500 other documents that were suddenly discovered and belatedly turned over. He's facing a maximum 30 years in prison. What's he likely to get? Obviously, he's not going to get 30 years in prison. 
with this kind of charge. It's a white-collar case. It's nonviolent. And the other thing, it's still unclear how they're going to proceed with the interplay with the Malaysian case, because technically now he has to go back to Malaysia to face trial on that case. But according to Agnifilo, depending on the kind of sentence he receives in the U.S., Malaysia may default to the U.S. prosecution and say, all right, let's let that take care of and encompass any kind of punishment we could ever impose in Malaysia. The appeal will probably deal with it. But, you know, Malaysia has not had raving success with bringing forfeiture cases to the people involved in this, Mm -hmm. including the wife of the former prime minister of Malaysia. They sued her to recover all these millions of dollars in diamond, pink diamonds, including a $23 million diamond necklace. And other, like, $1.5 million in luxury handbags, including Hermes bags. And they sought to forfeit it, and they lost the case. So it's not like they have great success, and yet U.S. prosecutors at Roger Ong's trial were saying, oh, look, this is the booty that was purchased with the fraud that Roger helped create and helped execute. And yet, in Malaysia... Malaysia lost that case. Thanks, Pat. That's Patricia Hurtado, Bloomberg Legal Reporter. You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. In recent years, law enforcement agencies around the world have had to learn quickly about how to deal with cryptocurrencies, often in amounts that eclipse traditional assets such as cash, gold, jewelry, cars, and real estate. Law enforcement is becoming more sophisticated in identifying and accessing a suspect's cryptocurrency and navigating the challenges of securing it and eventually liquidating it. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter David Voriakis. How much cryptocurrency is being seized nowadays? Law enforcement agencies around the world are seizing more and more. And in the United States, they've broken several records recently, just in February, they had the largest financial seizure ever. That was about $3.6 billion in Bitcoin that was stolen during the 2016 hack of the Bitfinex currency exchange. There were $919 million in cryptocurrency being held by the U.S. Marshals Service through the end of last year. And the Marshals are the largest agency that... Uh, hold and sell cryptocurrency on behalf of the U.S. government. The IRS Criminal Investigation Division also does the overwhelming majority of its seizures in cryptocurrencies. So agencies, not only in the U.S., but around Europe, are seizing more and more, and the numbers are in the billions of dollars. What makes cryptocurrencies attractive to criminals? Well, generally, the perception is that they're um, hard to trace and that um, it's easy to move money through crypto across exchanges and from one currency to another. And the real key for law enforcement is they need to be able to find the strings of random words that are that serve as the key to getting into a wallet. They're you know, known as seed phrases, and authorities can trace crypto across the blockchain, but unless they have uh, the password to get into a wallet, 
they're not able to actually see that money. That phrase, is that sort of like a password that you put on, you know, a web account or something that only the person who created it knows? Yes, and it's a much more elaborate password. And part of the problem is um, they're very hard to remember, so people will write them down. And we said that um, agents have discovered seed phrases hidden on a gun wrapper, inside a TV instruction manual, and on tiny pieces of paper stuffed in a suitcase in a closet. We also had an example of a case in France where someone wrote it on a piece of paper inside a recipe book. So it's that hard to remember? You can't just memorize it? They're generally not at all easy to remember. And so people go to great lengths to try to place it in a secure place and not lose it. But, of course, they, they end up losing it or not putting it in a secure place. So let's say authorities seize a crypto wallet or something, and they're unable to find the seed phrase. Does that mean that there is no way that they can open that wallet? There's no other option? That's correct. So they need to be able to figure out the seed phrase so they can get access to the wallet. It's a much more complicated you know, form of uh, cryptology, if you will. Um, and so that's a challenge for law enforcement. So first, is it easy to recognize a crypto wallet? It is easy to um, track it on most blockchains, certainly the Bitcoin um, blockchain. Um, that's a way that um, law enforcement can see it moving across uh, the blockchain. And um, that blockchain is immutable and is not going to change over time. And it's a permanent record. So we talk to people who think that um, in that way, there's more transparency on the blockchain of Bitcoin than there is on the legacy financial system where money can move around the world through, um, you know, front accounts. David, in some instances, are there huge stashes of Bitcoin that are sitting around because the authorities can't find the seed phrase? There are, my understanding is there are, in some instances, large stashes of Bitcoin sitting in wallets that are marked, um, you know, by either the government or cryptocurrency research firms. And they know that um, that crypto is considered tainted or the product of criminal activity. And they are waiting for someone to um, take action and move it. And then they may try to seize it. Um, but um, the real challenge is primarily to try to identify who the owner is of that um, crypto because it may be held anonymously. Say investigators find the crypto wallet and the seed phrase. Tell us about the challenges of securing it and liquidating it. Well, authorities um, want to be able to store it um, in a place that is secure and not vulnerable to hacking. So they'll often put it in what's known as cold storage or moving it offline. And they want to um, be able to use a uh, – generally, governments are moving toward um, companies that um, store and sell crypto on their behalf. And the 
particularly even among governments, on just how they're going to handle crypto, especially as the amounts have gotten larger and larger and the value of Bitcoin has has really soared in recent years. So there are firms that are dedicated just to this. Um, we discussed how uh, the U.S. Marshals, which again is the largest um, government agency in the U.S. handling uh, crypto sales, they issued a contract last year uh, to BitGo, but then that award fell through because the company was supposed to be designated as a small business and BitGo was considered too large. Then um, they awarded the contract to Anchorage Digital, and um, that contract is also on hold pending the outcome of a protest. Uh, We cited in the story, for instance, in Germany, Prosecutors in each of the country's 16 states decide how they're going to manage these property. Um, so there's a lot of different options on the table for government. We also um, talk about a company um, that is strictly in the business of um, advising governments and other entities um, how to store and sell their crypto assets. So let's say the government liquidates the assets. When they try to return some to the victims, do the victims get the Bitcoin that they had initially or the Bitcoin that maybe has increased in value a lot sitting around for years? That's an excellent question. And my understanding is it remains a bit of an open question. Um, Governments tend to say, um, we're going to sell the asset that we have so that we can do our best to make the victim whole now. And um, if it's going to appreciate in value over the years, we can anticipate that. And our duty is to try to get the most value that we can now. Um, For all they know, the value of the cryptocurrency may decrease considerably as you know, the market's so volatile and it's gone up and down. So generally, governments have taken the position that they're going to sell it when they get it, you know, through the seizure process. But there are some who argue that that's not fair to victims, say, who've been defrauded in a crypto scam, that why should they get, you know, say, 100000 in proceeds when the Bitcoin they had is now worth 500000 And so that's a very interesting question for the courts to grapple with. And it's easy for investigators to find the victims through the blockchain ledger? Not necessarily. Um, There's a whole notification process that goes on, at least in the U.S. federal courts. Um, And there is um, generally a, a set time period in which victims need to respond. Um, And Um, I've talked to people in the government who've had a hard time trying to find victims in a timely way. Um, People who believe they also have a claim to seized cryptocurrency have a fixed period of time to put in a claim to be resolved by the courts. And there's some um, hotly disputed um, cases over who has rights to seized currency. There's a particular case that's going on in federal court in San Francisco in which um, the U.S. government took um, claim to a billion dollars.
wires in stolen um, cryptocurrency uh, that had belonged to a person referred to as individual X. And um, this was uh, Bitcoin that had been hacked from the Silk Road digital marketplace um, and uh, in about 2013. And uh, it was um, confiscated in November of 2020. And there's been a um, court case going on ever since. There are several people who say um, some of that um, seized Bitcoin belongs to them. And the judge just recently ruled that it didn't. And now there's, um, you know, appellate action going on um, in response to the judge's ruling. Is this mostly the FBI doing these kind of investigations? Do states also have the expertise at this point to investigate this? States are doing it. The lead agency really in the U.S., as I understand it, are the FBI and the Internal Revenue Services Criminal Investigation Division, or CID. They've done the biggest cases. Uh, Homeland Security Investigation has also done some big cases. But um, the technological advances by these large government agencies have really been tremendous in the last couple of years. And that's how they've been able to make these very large seizures. They also work with um, big outside research firms that help them um, correlate data that they've um, gathered through a number of different um, investigations, um, summons procedures, and, um, and they, they can track over time the wallets um, on the blockchain and um, what other sorts of um, ways they can corroborate who might um, own those, those wallets. At this point, with their knowledge, is it any more difficult than dealing with criminals who have their gains in in cash or assets? In some ways, it is more difficult. Um, in other ways, um, they can tell just where um, you know the crypto went. Now they need to identify who's behind that crypto. Uh, it's not that different than the challenge of money that gets moved offshore, say, into um, nominee accounts in the Cayman Islands or the British Virgin Islands or, you know, Jersey or Panama. Um, And there are tremendous um, secrecy provisions in many of those tax havens and even in the United States that make it very difficult for investigators to trace those types of assets. Will the marshals auction off Bitcoin the way they auction off boats and cars and paintings? Well, as we point out, for several years, they did auction off uh, Bitcoin in just that manner. Um, In the last couple of years, they've tried to hire outside contractors, and and they've had these problems uh, with the contracting process. So the marshals are selling them um, through... um, they're selling them themselves, um, working with um, a company that is uh, helping them to store the crypto, but they haven't um, been forthcoming about just how that process works. What's the best story you've heard involving crypto and investigations? Well, I guess the individual X story is kind of amazing. Um, in November of 2020, 
U.S. authorities um, seized a billion dollars in Bitcoin from someone only identified as Individual X. And um, within a year or so, that was worth $3 billion. Um, It's now worth less than that, but um, that was a tremendous seizure. Um, And, um, you know, as I understand it, there's, there's, uh, the authorities expect there's going to be a lot more of that to come as their sophistication increases. Thanks so much, David. That's Bloomberg legal reporter David Voriakis. That's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by listening to our Bloomberg Law podcasts. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Bloomberg.